And let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Find your smartphone, your tablet, your Bible, whatever you've got. Find your way to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, please. Page 1504 in that book rack Bible, if you'd like to use that. That tool in front of you there, that's great. The one who dies with the most toys wins. You ever heard that expression before? Well, that was coined by a person by the late Malcolm Forbes of Forbes magazine. He was a millionaire who spent a lot of money and made a lot of money. And if I were to ask you the question, if you believe that was true, probably because we're in the church and probably because we know the right answer, we wouldn't shoot our hand up and agree with that statement. He who dies with the most toys wins. But if we were to probe into our personal lives and look at what we do with our time and what we do with our finances and the things that we're trying to gain for ourselves, I wonder if the evidence would maybe lean a little bit on the side of Maybe we believe that a little more than we would admit. If there's something all of us are dealing with in the culture we're living in, it's the amassing of wealth and resources. We live in the most wealthy nation in the world. And we live in part of the part of the nation that is the wealthiest of all. And most of our wealth is spent on ourselves. What we're looking at today from the words of Jesus is really a powerful convicting point on how we look at wealth and how we look at our possessions. And it's not so much an issue of wealth versus poverty as much as something deeper. It's the craving we have, no matter how much we have or don't have, the craving we have for more. Say the word more. That's something that goes through our thinking a lot. We have this, but we want more. We have so much, we want more. It's the craving for more that we find at the heart of the matter that Jesus is getting to right here in our text this morning. So follow along as I read this, and then we're going to carefully look at it. Verse 19 Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, well, the controlling idea of this section is how a person views wealth and possessions is the telling mark of what's really in their heart. We're either craving more for ourselves, to spend on ourselves, to store up for ourselves, or we hold a conviction that whatever we pursue and obtain in this life is really something that comes from God and should be used back to God to glorify Him and bless others. 
So we need to take a pretty honest look this morning as to where we are with our views toward money and possessions and what we're doing with them. Now I'm sure some of us in our hearts are leaning toward the mute button right now for this sermon. Because nobody wants to really hear what we ought to do with our stuff and our money. And I get that. I understand that. I feel the same. But when we come to the word of God and we hear Jesus say something, we need to pay attention, don't we? We listen to what he has to say. So if you're tempted right now to mute the rest of this sermon, don't forget that this is the word of Jesus Christ and a pastor who's trying to be faithful to it. Now I want to point out as we begin the teaching time this morning that Jesus here is not, is not on a rant about wealth and possessions. He's not trying to get his people to become more communal in their wealth management. Jesus is actually going after a problem here. It's a big problem and it was something that was very popular during the day of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And what was popular then was the notion that if you were a righteous person, you would be wealthy. That God blessed those who are righteous. And God would see that you, were, you had a righteous heart and so he would abundantly bless you with money and possessions. So it was the view of the Pharisees that if you had money, it was proof that you were righteous. And conversely, if you were not wealthy, if you were poor, that that was, a, that was proof that you were unrighteous, that you had missed the call of God, that somehow there might be sin or something you were hiding from God or doing something that was offensive to God. Can you imagine living in that kind of environment? There are tentacles of that in our own day and even in uh, the Christian church where there's the feeling that uh, because, uh, because we follow the Lord then he's going to pour out his blessing upon us and there's this, this tentacled, uh, toxic view, I believe, of the Christian faith that, that is all about prosperity in terms of wealth and wealth management that comes from God who blesses his people. But we know that you can be uh, rich and be bl uh, a blessing and, and be righteous in the Lord's eyes, and you can be poor and be blessed and righteous in God's eyes. It's not a matter of how much we have. It's a matter of what's in the heart and how we look at what we have. And the reality is you can be poor or rich and have the same problem, greed and self-indulgence. So that's a little bit of the background to where Jesus is coming at this. And to, to talk about this in a way that might help us remember and maybe internalize and even do a little evaluation this morning, I've decided to put this into three tests. How do we know what's in our hearts this morning? We're going to take three tests. Okay, now no, most of us don't like tests. I don't like tests. But these will be ways that you can just sort of look at your heart. You're not going to be graded on this. Let the Holy Spirit just kind of walk you through these three tests this morning that we, that we see right in these three paragraphs. The first verse, verses 19 through 21 in this first paragraph is the test of, I call it the valuables test, or you could say the values test. Either one is fine. It, it focuses clearly on our treasures, our possessions. And I know right away we get funny about this. Like I said a minute ago, and we're, we're cautious about anyone speaking to us about, about wealth or wealth management. But watch this. Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than he did any other social issue. He talked about money and possessions more than he talked about marriage or politics or work or sex or power. His teaching about money in the context of what we find in the gospel is always, I should say, always in the context of discipleship and loyalty to God. 
That's where the context or that's where the topic of money comes up and possessions come up. So what Jesus is saying here in in essence in verses 19 through 21 is that there's a values test that we can see what's in our heart. Now the values test asks about the worth we place on our wealth and our possessions and how we manage them. Okay, notice right here in the text, look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, he's not saying that having money or making money or even being wealthy is wrong or unspiritual, okay? Some of the most wealthy people in Scripture were godly people, God's choice servants, Abraham, uh, Job, David, Solomon, amazing wealth, wealth beyond, uh, in modern terms, probably uh, what anyone has ever experienced, and yet godly and focused and, and definitely given unto the Lord. In fact, the Bible reminds us that about the time we start thinking that our wealth has come from our own efforts, God wants to remind us that actually, no, if we are wealthy, it is because God has allowed us this opportunity. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. Let's just read that out loud together. This is Moses' challenge, God reminding the people through Moses as they come into the promised land. And let's just read it together. Moses says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. Who gives us the ability to produce wealth? God does. God does. So any of you, quote, self-made millionaires out there this morning, or self-made whatever you are, if you think you're self-made, you really have not been giving glory to God because God gives us the ability. Uh, The book of Proverbs comes at this from another angle. It says, hey, if you don't work hard, you're not likely to produce much in your life. And so the proverb says, go to the ant. Look at the industry of an ant, a little bug, a little tiny insect, and how the industriousness of an ant does so much. And then the writer goes on to say, and I'll put this on the screen quickly, I'll read, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. So you sit around too much, you like to sleep a little too much, you decide not to get up and go to work and I'm just gonna kind of float through life and not worry about it. Well, then the proverb says, you're not gonna produce much and that's not good. So God first reminds us that wealth and and the ability to make money is a gift from him and God warns us not to be lazy or slothful because he wants us to be productive and we should be But then this warning comes around to us in 1 Timothy 6, 17, where Paul writes to Timothy, he says, command those who are rich in this present world, and by the way, let's just stop right there and say, that's all of us, who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Where should our hope be? In our money? No. In our possessions? No. In whom? In God. Our hope should be in God. And we're going to come back to that uh, text a little bit later in the, in the sermon. So it's important to see that God doesn't condemn wealth he, or even obtaining wealth. What this test is about, back to the test, the values test, is the worth we place on our wealth and how we manage it. And, and 
the reason we look at this test and determine what's going on in our hearts is because there are people that don't see wealth this way. Some people, according to this text, some people ascribe worth to stockpiling more wealth and possessions for themselves. Have you ever met someone like that? Are you like that? Stockpiling, that's the whole goal of wealth and possessions. And notice verse 19, do not store up for yourselves. I've, I've underlined in my Bible the, the word, the pronoun there, yourselves, because whenever this is the mindset, it's always about you, right? And life is not about you. Life is not about me. And these are the people who store up their treasures on earth, verse 19 says. Now, Jesus is going after this attitude. Let's come back to this idea. Nothing wrong with being wealthy, nothing wrong with obtaining wealth, but it's going after this stockpiling, this greed, this love for money and selfish indulgence that is being brought up here. And by the way, the scripture speaks of that theme as well. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, you might be familiar with it, but let's read that out loud together. Ecclesiastes 5.10, it says this, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with its income. Isn't that interesting? So if you really love money, the Bible promises you that you're never gonna be satisfied. You're never gonna have enough. There's always gonna be more to gain. Now back to the First Timothy 6 passage. I told you I'd come back to it. Well, here it is. In verses nine and 10, earlier in what we just read a moment ago, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow, that's pretty, pretty uh, amazing thought. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So here he is talking to Christians talking to Timothy about Christians, and there are Christians who have wandered from the faith because of their love for money. Have you ever heard somebody say that money is the root of all evil? Have you ever heard that? Well, that's not true. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. That's what the Bible says. So don't misquote it. Because love is neutral. Excuse me, love. Money is neutral. Money is just a tool. It can be used for good or it can be used for bad. It can be a point of greed and vice in our lives or it can be an opportunity to resource and bless others. So money is absolutely neutral and Jesus says, stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. This voracious appetite for having more and more and to use it on ourselves. And remember I said in the context, this was prevalent among the religious leaders, among the Pharisees. In fact, take your Bibles, keep your finger in in Matthew 6 and let's go over to Luke chapter 16 real quick. Let me just show you one verse there that I think you'll find is somewhat interesting and telling to what we're looking at right here. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. Or no, yeah, 16, 14. Now, this is coming off the same teaching that Luke records Jesus speaking about not serving both God and money. And he goes on in verse 14, the Pharisees who, what? Loved money, heard all this, and was what? Sneering at Jesus. Oh, man, you can kind of see the mindset right there. They loved money, and so they sneered at what Jesus was saying here. Just like some of us, some of us, might be sneering in our hearts right now. 
We're kind of going, come on. I mean, I, this life is so short. I should be able to get as much as I want for myself and I don't want to have anybody tell me not to. Okay, well, that's all right. We can, we can have that mindset, but it's not a biblical mindset, certainly not for a Christ follower to have that mindset. Now, here's something more pertinent and closer to home. The person that Jesus is describing here could be you, could be me. And of course, if this is you or me, then we should also know the liability of living this way. Notice what he says. Where moth and rust destroys and thieves break in and steal. The problem of this kind of greedy mentality with a self-absorbed life, listen, results in corrosive agents that are both passive and active. Passively, there's corrosive agents like moth and rust. Go home today and just inventory all the stuff you've got. Look at your house, walk around, look at your cars, look at your favorite stereos, your electronic gadgets. Look at all that stuff and realize that someday it's all gonna be, it's, it's gonna be destroyed through just wear and tear and, and use and the, the elements. Rust and moth, corrosive agents, passively. You don't have to do anything, it's just gonna destroy those things. So in 100 years from now or less, all the stuff that you have is gonna be dust, basically. Isn't that a great thought? That's just a great thought. All the stuff you're paying payments on and everything, it's all gonna be gone. Or active corrosives where thieves break in and steal. Some of us this week have had our cars broken into. You might have had the statistics are going up all the time of daytime break-ins of homes, radical stuff going on. It's amazing. Don't you watch the news? You see all this stuff where now every security camera in the world sees all this stuff. Not that you can apprehend and necessarily convict the people that are doing it, but wow, just all these people just doing this kind of stuff, taking what isn't theirs. And so we're reminded, watch this, we're reminded that it's either going to dissolve and go away on its own because it's just going to rust out or somebody's going to steal it from us. And if those two things don't happen in your lifetime, guess what? When you finish your life, you're leaving those things. You know, ask how much your wealthy friend left behind when he passed away. The answer is he left all of it. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, tells a story about a pagan, uh, excuse me, uh, um, uh, a peasant farmer, a pagan farmer, a peasant farmer. And this peasant farmer was given a, a deal of a lifetime. For a thousand rubles, he could have as much land as he could walk in one day. And so as the story goes, he sets off first thing in the morning, but the only condition was he had to be back at the same st- place he started before the sun set. So sunrise comes and man, he is off running. He is trekking through this community. This is gonna be the most amazing day of his life. As far as his feet will take him will be his land. And he goes over one hill and over the next and suddenly he realizes the time is getting away. The sun is starting to go down. He thinks one more canyon, one more little valley, one more hill. And then he realizes, wow, I'm losing time. Will I get back? He starts running. It's a fitful run. He's tearing as fast as he can through this little, little uh, beautiful uh, meadow. He comes to the place where he started just as the sun disappears. Oh, he finished. And then he drops dead of a heart attack. His servants come out and bury him. 
And the land he was buried in was six feet by two and a half feet. And Leo Tolstoy titled the story, How Much Does a Man, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? What are we going after? What are the things that we think we have to have? Now, if Jesus were addressing us today, no doubt he'd talk about amassing wealth and things like our houses, our cars, our gadgets, our bank accounts, our retirement plans, our stuff. And none of those things are wrong in themselves, but again, it's their pursuit that may belie a deeper problem in our hearts, one of greed and covetousness of always wanting, what's that word again? More. So some people, some people are about amassing and hoarding and stockpiling. But some people, verse 20, some people ascribe worth in using their wealth and possessions for doing more for God and others. Look at verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Hmm, interesting. These folks are also storing up and these folks also want more. The difference is in where it will be used and for what it will be used. And for any of you business people out there that like return on investment, what Jesus says here is absolutely amazing. He says, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus guarantees a 100% return on investment. There is no bear market in heaven, no recessions. That means whatever our investment is for kingdom work, it will not wear out, it will not rust out, no one can steal it, no thief can take it, and when you leave this earth, you will be blessed and rewarded by it. And I don't even know what that really means, because we're not talking about a, a, a monetary reward, but we know that there is so much in Scripture about the blessing of reward at the judgment for believers, which is a, a judgment of reward, not for punishment. And what that's going to look like is, is amazing. Now, you might think, well, I, I, I don't have much. What can I do? Well, no matter what you have, listen to this. Matthew 10, 42. We'll be there in a, a few weeks, I guess. Matthew 10, 42. Jesus says, if anyone gives even a cup of water to one of these little ones... Because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying even a little cup of water given in the right attitude, the right motive, for the right purpose, God is going to reward. Isn't that amazing? So you don't have to have a lot. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to do some grandiose gift. Even a cup of water given in Jesus' name will receive its right reward. We have to be careful that the only thing, uh, we have to be careful not to assume that the only thing we send ahead, so to speak, is our finances. Because I believe it's our time, our treasure, and our talents. It's everything. I think we can invest in whatever that is that God is building for us in terms of a, a depository of, of those things that we do down on, on earth. Things like compassion, Things like listening to someone who's hurting, crying with someone, our sister who's working in hospice, what a beautiful ministry that is. Taking time to be with the suffering, the physically ill, the infirmed. Or forgiving someone for a debt that 
you know, that you have been holding over them, a grievance that you've been holding on to. I think all of those things store up this beautiful reward. We send it ahead. Nothing will be lost, nothing forgotten. These are the people who store up their treasures in heaven. And the beautiful thing about it is, is that this person could be you. It could be me. Now, the heart... You might say, wow, Larry, I know that I'm a follower of Jesus, but I get tripped up in this, and I, this is a good reminder, but how, my heart, how do I turn my heart to be more of what we're talking about here? Well, Jesus says how to do that in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So here's the reality. To change your heart, you need to change what you value. Did you get that? And whatever you value... Wherever you invest, your heart will follow. That's why it's, it's sort of a sadistic, you know, trick of pastors to say, you know, just come and get involved in something, you know. We need workers in cross streets. We need workers in children's ministry. You say, I don't have time for that. Uh-huh. Okay, I'll try it. I'll go once, you know. And you go, and all of a sudden your heart opens up. Oh, there's needs here. And so you start giving your time. And you know what? Guess what? Your heart starts following that. You hear about a project, the Chang Rai facility, and you say, wow, I'd like to be a part of that. I don't have much. I'll give you this. And then you're listening. The next time the video comes up, you go, wow, look at that. They've dedicated a new training center there. Your heart follows your resources. Your heart follows your time. You can't change your heart by a decision. You have to invest. You have to invest. So if any of you are having heart trouble this morning, the beautiful thing is you can, you can change the direction of your heart by where you invest. Your heart will follow. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm glad for that too. And by the way, this is the work of God in our lives. This is what happens when Jesus comes in and takes control of our lives. This is what happens when he becomes everything to us. This is the inside out work of the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful thing because you might even be offense, uh, offended by what I'm saying to you this morning, and that's okay. If you're offended because you're not a Christ follower, you think, hey, someone's trying to manipulate my giving or my money or something like that, you can push away as all, all you want, but when you follow Jesus, when you decide to live for Jesus, when that moment comes, then you realize that everything you are and everything you have really belongs to him. And so then the real struggle begins in life to, to really live and understand what that means. And, and that's the work of the Spirit of God in sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus, right? Romans eight twenty nine, That whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. God is more determined to make you like Jesus than you're determined to make your life into Jesus. He's gonna do that work if you're a follower of Jesus. And I realize for some of us, this is just offensive. It doesn't fit. Uh, you're checking out Christianity this morning or wherever you are. I'm so glad you're here. But just, just let me share with you, it's okay for you to feel pushback right now in your heart because until God does the work in your heart of saving you and bringing you into a relationship with him, this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the world says, hey, you're gonna live 50, 60, 70, 80 years, maybe 90 at the most, you gotta go after it with all you can and spend it all on yourself. Do it. It's all about you. That's not what Jesus does. He does an, an incredible work inside of us. So the first thing is this values test, okay? So how do we do? Just think about our hearts. Where are we with the values test? The second test we need to take is a vision test, okay? Vision test. 
Now, you know, you go to the doctor and they put the little thing up and you read the letters, right? So when I do that, I, I start speaking numbers. <laughs> you know, I go, letters? I thought they were numbers. You know, that's a really, that's how bad my vision is. But a vision test asks about where your eyes focus and what they desire most. Okay, so in verses 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how, can, how great is that darkness? Now, if you're having a hard time understanding that, you're not alone. There's a lot of controversy about this little paragraph and what it really means. It's interesting, uh, the controversy swirls around the two terms good and bad. The Greek word for good, which we translate here, good, haplos, is a word that is rendered also singular. And the word bad, poneros in the Greek, usually means evil, but in the Jewish mind, evil here, when used with I, has the sense of being stingy or selfish or begrudging. So what this passage could mean is that in one sense that people with good eyes have singular vision and are not, conf- not confused by the duplicitous lifestyle of trying to serve God and stuff at the same time. And okay, does that make sense? Or it could mean that those with good eyes demonstrate generosity in the way they live and everything they see in life is sort of through this grid of generosity and those with bad eyes are stingy and begrudging and so they don't. The metaphor relates, obviously, to what comes before in the text. If you're doing hermeneutical study, you look at what comes before and what comes after. And and I think the good and the bad here in verses 22 and 23 obviously reflect a heart of generosity, one who is good, or a heart of of duplicity or a heart of, of selfishness on the other, which is bad. And Jesus says, if that's what's going on in your heart, um, you're either one way or the other. You're either a person who's looking for ways to honor God with everything you are and possess, or you're not. And that's the question. That's the vision test. Some people spend their time looking at ways to honor God with everything they have. So let's just think about what our eye gate sees, okay? What what do you see? What are you looking at most during the week? What are you looking at? Spreadsheets, journals, books, magazines, TV, PlayStation, video games, computers, cell phone, FaceTime, eBay, Craigslist. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of what we just focus. Glad somebody got excited about those things. (laughs) Listen carefully for what's coming next. If we're focusing on these things, which we all have, we all have these screens in front of us, we all have, but watch this, whatever we're focusing on really determines, uh, determines a lot about who we are. And, and what we see when we look at those things determines a lot too. When we have the eyes of faith, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, what this means is we're not just gazing up into heaven sort of hoping that God is going to you know, show himself to us or reveal himself to us, but we're, we're saying, Jesus, live your life through me today. Live your life through how I use my things, how, what I focus on, what I invest my time in, and so forth. And these are people, if your eyes are on Jesus, if your eyes, if you're looking at life, looking at whatever it is you're looking at through the grid of, does this glorify God? Is this something I can use in my life? Is there something I can use to bless others? If there's something I can do to bless others, if, the, if this is the mindset of our hearts, then, then we are people with good eyes. We are full of light. But some people, 
spend their time looking at ways to indulge and serve themselves. And these are folks that typically have not yet been redeemed by Christ, although I think even Christ followers can dip into this as well. We can all get sidetracked and we can all follow our own desires. And I guess I'm kind of stuck here because I feel like there's a lot that needs to be said about this in the sense that we look around and we see people who are very benevolent who are not necessarily Christ followers and you kind of scratch your head and you say, what's that about? You know, people that are very philanthropic, they give money they to endowments and foundations and all that. And I don't know, I'm gonna trust the word of God that says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God, no one who does good, Romans chapter three. And if I believe the biblical premise, then I have to, I interpret those actions through what the scripture says. So yes, God, we are created in God's image, and so perhaps benevolence and goodwill is a part of God's image. Yes, we could agree with that. But maybe somebody who gives a lot of money or donates a lot of their stuff to needy people might be sort of a ruse. It might be a way of them, themselves justifying their own existence apart from submitting to the one who created them and given them the ability to make wealth. I don't know, just a suggestion. I mean, could you give great gobs of money and donate to great causes in the world and truly be an egomaniac? Yeah, you could, because it could be about what it does for you or even your own self-justification. I don't need God, look at what I've done. And maybe even people that do not know Christ who live in these kinds of ways are completely unfamiliar with that reality in their own hearts. Because again, the Spirit of God has to illuminate and show us who we really are. I can't tell, you're a sin- I can't tell you you are a sinner. The Spirit of God must reveal to you that you're a sinner. And when he does that, it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Because then we fall on the one who has given us life and given his life for ours. So the people that live to indulge themselves, these are people with bad eyes and they're filled with darkness. And so the reality is, uh, our vision might need correcting, right? Now my wife a few weeks ago had surgery. She had uh, a, a tear in her retina. That's a, that's a pretty invasive thing. She discovered one day that when she looked straight ahead, there was this blurry spot, you know? She thought it was her contact. She thought then it might be a prescription, but I... I know with my eyesight issues, I go, that's something you need to check. So she goes to the doctor and sure enough, she's got a a torn retina. So they have to surgically repair this. And this is not laser surgery. This is actually cutting into the eye, stitching the retina, putting it all back together. She had to stay face down after the surgery for an entire week, face down. My dear poor wife and her dear caregiver. It was... I loved serving my wife. It was really one of the most precious weeks of my life because she is always serving me. And it was a beautiful, beautiful opportunity to just try to, you know, come to a two or a three on the basis of her 10 in, in her service to me. But the doctor came into our room before she went in for surgery and reminded her of something that he had said earlier on. He said, by the way, don't forget that the surgery I'm doing today is going to produce a cataract. And we're like, oh yeah, that's right. Tell us more about that. What is a cataract? He said, well, the cataract is, is essentially like a dirty window and it, it keeps the light from coming in. But what we're gonna do in the cataract surgery, this is three months after your surgery I'm doing on you today, uh, we're going to remove the dirty lens and we're gonna put in a clean one. And I thought to myself as he said that, 
that this is what Jesus does when he comes into our lives, when he takes residence in our lives. He removes the dirty lens and he replaces it with a clean one so that the full light of his truth can come in and illuminate our lives and show us where we need to go and what we need to do. So there's a values test and there's a vision test. Let's look at one last test quickly and that is the vows test. Now the vows test, verse 24, says no one can serve two masters. The vows test asks about to whom or what we pledge our singular loyalty. This is what Jesus is getting at. What is your singular loyalty? Not both and, but the one and only. Uh, when I do a wedding, and I did one yesterday, it was a beautiful wedding outside. I love to hear the couples as they share their vows. And I either do a repeat after me vow or they write their own. And yesterday the couple wrote their own and it was absolutely phenomenal. You talk about pledging your life one to another. It was beautiful. But what if you sat in a wedding and heard a spouse pledging his or her life uh, to their their about-to-be spouse, husband or wife, and they said it this way in their vows. And I promise to make you one of the most important people in my life. <laughs> now, how, how would that be? It'd probably be a slap, you know. Oh, wouldn't that be great? I promise you will be one of many in my life. No. That person wants to know one thing and one thing only. Will you be devoted to me for the rest of your life? That's the vows test. And Jesus says, that's what's going on right here. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Some people's loyalty is to their stuff, to their stuff or anything that satisfies. By the way, the word money here in the NIV translation, some of your translations use the word mammon. See that? Mammon. That's a weird word. We don't know how to translate it, to be honest. Most of the time we translate it money because that makes the most sense. But do you know what the word literally means? It means security. What makes you secure? It could be money. It could be position. could be status. could be how many friends you have. And what Jesus is saying, I don't want to compete. I want to be your one and only. When you get that straight in your life by the grace of God, then everything else falls into place. You cannot serve me and mammon. You cannot find your security in me and something else. This is the call of the gospel, is it not, in our lives? There is a brand of Christianity that seems to assume that it's actually okay to have both. Serve yourself and serve God. Just as long as you're serving God with a little bit more intensity than yourself. But Jesus would have never gone for that. He says right here, you cannot serve God and mammon. So, those are the three tests. Values, vision, and vows. And those three tests really open up a better picture of the condition of our hearts when it comes to money and possessions. Let's go to the Lord right now in prayer.